and welcome to this Highlights podcast from the November 2012 Bright Club, Dreams and Nightmares. Coming up, we'll hear songs about Facebook and falling in love and the challenges of explaining the Large Hadron Collider to Wayne Rooney. But to kick things off, we're taking a trip back into the past with the brilliant John Gallagher. I am Maximus Decius Meridius, uh, husband to a murdered PhD, uh, and I hold a BA in the arts. Hello, everybody. Good evening. So, uh, I'm John. Uh, I'm doing a PhD. Uh, I'm doing a PhD in history. Um, I'm in my third year. It's obviously a very, very busy time. Uh, you know yourself, everyone's kind of looking for the same set of jobs. Big history firms are all uh, hiring. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's just it's a tough... It's a tough time for everyone, but um, I just want to—I want to check if anyone else has had the same experience as me. Could you put your hand up if you've ever done, say, something like a long period of research, whether it was for you know an article or a PhD or a master's or a thesis or something like that? If you've ever worked from home at all, can I get some hands up? If you've ever worked from home, you have, you have. Okay, because you lot, you might all be a little bit familiar uh, with a phenomenon that I like to call procrastinating. Uh, and this is something that, Ted, if you've got something difficult to do, uh, you will find something to cook to take your mind away from that. Uh, there is no better time to do an eight-hour slow-cooked stew uh, than when you've got an article due, uh, due the next day. You're kind of, you know, people are saying, well, you've really got to submit by the end of this month. And you say, but I'm constructing a croque en bouche. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Mary Berry is my alternative supervisor for this particular community. That's a great British bake-off joke for the other two people in the room who adore that show. Um, thank you very much for that, Woo. That was very kind of you. But the reason I mention procrastinating uh, is because I did some today. And it's because today, the 2nd of November, is All Souls Day. Uh, and there's an old uh, kind of pre-Reformation tradition uh, of baking, to get away from your PhD, no, uh, of baking little things called soul cakes. Uh, which are slightly less cool than they sound. It's not just like a gateau served by James Brown. Uh, it's, yeah, so I spent most of this morning baking, and then as though I couldn't get nerdy enough, live tweeting the baking of uh, a set of soul cakes. So if you'd like to taste some delicious, actually they're really dry, to be honest. They are stone cold shite, but as I said, uh, I'm a historian. I get a lot of fun out of this. I work in the 16th and 17th century. I do a lot of work in archives. It's a huge amount of fun. You find great names. I don't know if you knew this. In 16th century London, there was a street called Knight Rider Street, which makes me insanely happy. You come across amazing names for people. My favourite guy, he's in a kind of census of London in about 1580, and he goes by the amazing name of Bastard Falkenbridge. How can we guarantee that the other children won't make fun of him? Um, but yeah, no, so I, I get a lot of fun. I find some really interesting stuff working in archives. I'm going to talk to you about that today. Um, but I should warn you that it's not. If you've seen people go to archives in the movies, uh, it's not what it seems. Uh, Dan Brown really pisses off physicists um, because he implies uh, that antimatter is a, basically a massive bomb that you can fit in a thermos flask uh, and carry around London with Amelie, right? And, and, that's, and that really pisses off physicists. Historians get really annoyed by the portrayal of archives in this because they basically show up and they say, we need to get to the archives and fast. And they arrive and say, we need this one document which can save, this isn't a very good impression, which can save the future of humanity. And they say, yes, come in, have a look. Instead of what would actually happen, which is they would say, that's, that's very well, uh, Mr. Hanks, uh, do, do you have two forms of ID, please? 
uh, or any proof of address and a letter from your supervisor or a responsible adult uh, to say that you're capable of handling this. So that's kind of what I have to go through uh, most of the time. It's just a not very exciting lifestyle, which isn't very much like, uh, like, like that of Tom Hanks in any real way. But what I work on is uh, 16th and 17th century travellers. I'm interested in people, mainly people from Britain and Ireland, who travel from country to country. And this is a really interesting period. Okay, There's all sorts of different travel. I'm going to give you a quick idea of each of them. Number one is the really early colonial ventures, right? This is when you see the foundation of the East India Company, um, which gets founded, my favourite thing is, it gets founded on New Year's Day uh, of 1601, which just strikes me as the worst hangover in the world. What the fuck did we do last night? Oh, India, no! Um, but, yeah, so they found the East India Company, they start going to America, and it's the beginnings of colonialism. It's not quite as bad as it gets later. You know, these are just slightly less trigger-happy and racist sociopaths. Uh, and they go to America. It's really fascinating encounters between cultures. Later in the 17th century, there's travel uh, that happens for the purpose of science. There's an unbelievable guy called Jezreel Jones, and Jezreel Jones gets paid by the Royal Society. The Royal Society give him £100, which is a huge amount of money in those days, and they give him £100 to go to Africa. And they say, you go, you find it. You find out about language. You find out about knowledge. You find out about philosophy and thought and history and come back and write the book, Jezreel Jones. Tell us what is happening in Africa. And Jezreel Jones fucks off, takes the 100 quid, goes off, uh, and comes back a few years later and says, I have written the book, uh, and presents it to the Royal Society. And basically, it's a book of recipes. Um, he basically comes back and he's like, yeah, 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 philosophy or whatever, but you've got to check this amazing thing they do with lamb. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, I feel at this point that I should... Something that I, no one had told me, and I discovered when I started reading stuff about travel in this period, you start reading about various travellers that go to North Africa, and they are obsessed. English travellers are obsessed with couscous. Everyone mentions couscous, but they can't decide what it's called. Uh, so one's like, ah, it's called couscous. One's like, ah, it's called couscous. And one says, one guy is pretty sure it's called couscous-couscous. Uh, just, just eating dinner in extremely echoey rooms. Um, but yeah, so you've got these, you've got scientific travellers, some slightly better than Jezreel Jones. But you also have continental travel, people starting to go in massive numbers, not just as pilgrims, but as people in search of education, going to France and going to Italy. Now, this is very dangerous. It's dangerous for two reasons. Number one, Catholics. Number two, pirates, right? They don't have that much in common, except they are both fabulously dressed. Um, but, People are genuinely worried. The fabulous dress is a real problem with Catholics because, you know, England has just become Protestant of the previous century. They're a little unsure. They're surrounded by Catholic powers, and it's really frightening, the idea that if you go to, if you go to Europe, you might accidentally be allured in by these beautiful clothes that you see, and you might come back either Catholic or worse, slightly French. Um, <laughs> so there's massive attempts to stop all of this. And people get really, really worried about it. Sorry, I, I like to keep some notes on my arm whenever I do a gig, uh, uh, usually in the darkest ink I can find, so that if it goes badly, I can just say, I'm sorry, Voldemort needs me. Uh, I just, I just roll. Um, but, right, we're back, we're back. Uh, there is one of the most famous kinds of travel, uh, is the Grand Tour. Um, 
And this is interesting. Kind of travel really changes after about 1660 and 1670. And the young men of England start to go abroad. It's always men, um, nearly. Uh, young men start to go abroad, and they start to become interested in the art of the Renaissance. And they're learning everything about this. And they come back having learned to dance, having learned to fence, having learned to hold themselves in Italy, where 100 years before, you wanted to go over to get political information and languages. Nowadays, if you get into the 1670s and 1680s, the advice books say, when you go to Italy, it's really important that you learn how to walk into a room. Genuinely, this is it. You've just got to have a certain bearing about you. There's absolutely no fidgeting allowed. But when you read the diaries of these guys, it's absolutely amazing. You've got two kids, William and John Blaithwaite, get sent over uh, to France, to Switzerland, and to Italy in the year 1705. Um, and William and John Blaithwaite are accompanied by a lovely French guy who is their tutor. Um, and the tutor's job is basically to keep an eye on you, to be in charge of your education, and make sure you don't do something terrible, like accidentally get syphilis or go to mass, right? Um, <laughs> so this is basically his job. But the poor guy has to write back every week to the parents at home. The problem that he faces is that there are two sons. One, John, who's pretty decent. He's all right, you know, he's learning the language, he's learning the music, he's doing all of that. And his brother is an idiot. His brother is just, every letter is just like, John's doing very well, William, just keeps biting the inside of his own mouth. Like, it's absolutely terrific. So the tutors have a really difficult job. And the last guy I'm going to tell you about is a guy called Philip Percival. And Philip Percival, I like, because he goes over in 1675, and he has what we can only describe as a very messy breakup with his tutor. Right? They absolutely hate each other. They're each writing letters home saying, he's a dickhead, it's not me, it's you. Um, and finally, uh, the tutor gets sent home. And the tutor has to leave him, and he leaves him in the middle of France. And the tutor comes back to England and writes a book called The Complete Gentleman, which is basically the longest, most eloquent, passive-aggressive breakup note you have ever read. He's like, here's how you travel and become a gentleman. Some people didn't do this at all. And basically never mentions it by name, but he's like, yeah, I don't know, I wouldn't do that unless I was like a dickhead or something. Oh my God! Um, which is, I'm paraphrasing slightly. Um, but yeah, so there's just a whole amount of fascinating stuff in this. Um, there are also cakes, but I'm going to finish with this very last thing. Uh, I made a big discovery today, and we historians don't often get to, uh, or this week rather, we don't often get to find something that no one else has found before and find the time when something that became massively important actually began. Uh, and I did. And this is in a book from 1678. Uh, and it talks about English travellers. And it says that the real problem with English travelers, not only do they not bother to learn other languages, but they go to other countries, they speak really loudly to people and really slowly as though they're deaf, and they will speak nothing but their own language. So what I have found is the very first historical incidence of somebody going to Spain and shouting at the natives in English. Thanks very much, guys. Be great to have you. See you very much. So, concrete evidence that the stereotypical British tourist has been around longer than we thought, from John Gallagher. Now to our first two songs from musical maestro Rosalind Peters. Hello. <laughs> the phenomenon of Facebook is getting out of hand. The change to our social landscape no one could have planned. I know I risk sounding just like an OAP, but I view the book with a hue of negativity. We used to be communicators, used to be talkers, but now Facebook has just made us all stalkers. Oh, I have over 500 friends, most of whom I don't even know. 
but it dramatically increases my sense of self-worth. I used to be content with infrequently seeing their faces, but now I have to check them on a daily basis. Trawling through your newsfeed is a bit like drunken sex. You do it without thinking and it's something you're likely to regret. I see picture after picture of my friends all looking fine and fill with dread to think their lives more interesting than mine. So in a vague attempt to show them I'm as much fan as they, I'll take a photo of me planking and post it to my profile. Oh. It seems that my self-esteem has taken quite a blow because the notification icon hasn't turned red. <laughs> you wouldn't think my self-esteem would go on hiatus just because nobody has liked my status. <laughs> but it does. It's like a virus that just keeps on invading my space. When I'm on the book of face, I feel incomplete. It's not just a case of control or delete. Oh, despite all of my qualms, I can't quite seem to let go of this social networking exploitation of the human condition while all the while turning the global population into a mass market stall through the medium of targeted advertising and stuff. But despite all this, I'm still not free. That damn book's got a hold of me. And when I get back to where I'm from, open my laptop and log on, I will fill with devastation and rage if I find none of you have liked my page. It's sad but true, it must be said. A part of my soul will just drop dead unless you follow me on Twitter instead. <laughs> this next song is about falling in love with the wrong person. We've all been there. You're the fly in my ointment on my apple. You're a canker. You're a fairly big disappointment. You're a nuisance. You're a banker in these difficult economic circumstances. You're a cigarette with no lighter. You're mold on the last slice of bread. When I've no Red Bull, you're an all-nighter. And I can't get you out of my head. You're a Harley with no rider. You're a sign saying, look, but don't touch. You're a text from my service provider. And I love you so bloody much. You're a rainy day in Cyprus. You're a spoiler for a film I've not yet seen. You're a recording clash on Sky Plus. You're an earwax flavored Bertie Bot's bean. You're a nap that's completely involuntary. You're a lost key or only one glove. You're a line of poetry that doesn't really quite scan properly. And I think I'm falling in love. After all the pain you've caused me, all the trouble and the strife, you'll probably turn out to be the sodding love of my life. You're the virus in my computer. 
You're a pencil when I need a pen. You're the cat I forgot to neuter. And now I'm having kittens again. You're a dinghy when the weather is stormy. You're 11 eggs when I need a dozen. But despite all this, you're the only man for me. It's just a shame you're my cousin. Rosalind Peters there. Well, from music to matter now, or should that be antimatter? Harry Cliff is a researcher at the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge and at the LHC in Switzerland. Hello, I'm Harry. Um, I want to talk to you a bit about a problem that's been worrying me quite a lot recently. Um, it's a little bit sensitive. It's, uh, it's a problem with the size of my equipment. Um, so I'm a particle physicist, and particle physics, as you know, is all about studying the tiniest things that exist, like neutrinos and electrons and Nick Clegg's sense of self-worth. Um, and yet, to do that, we have to build the most enormous machines. Um, no self-respecting particle physicist is happy with a piece of kit that just fills a university laboratory. It has to be 10 miles long and cross three counties, otherwise we feel inadequate. Um, you might ask, are particle physicists compensating for something? And having met quite a few, I can tell you that generally, yes. Uh, yes, they are. Um, uh, and the experiment I work on is probably the ultimate embodiment of this stupidly large equipment. It's called the Large Hadron Collider. You may have heard of it. It's the largest machine ever constructed, a 27-kilometer-long particle accelerator. It's kind of the Ron Jeremy of the collider world. Um, it's also, incidentally, one of the worst named experiments in history. So and let's take the first word, large. Now, uh, large is an adjective I might apply to a coffee or my Auntie Lou. Um, it's not really appropriate for a machine that crosses the French-Swiss border twice and encompasses entire towns within its footprint. That's a bit like saying the voyage of the Titanic contained an unexpected detour. Um, <laughs> and then there's the word hadron. Uh, now, to explain why I really hate the word hadron, I should say that I spent a bit of time working at the Science Museum, where I'm helping them develop an exhibition all about the Large Hadron Collider. And at the Science Museum, we essentially assume that our average visitor is Wayne Rooney. Uh, so they know nothing, and they have the intellect of a highly evolved Brussels sprout. So you have to explain everything from first principles. Um, so you've got to explain to them, well, what, well then again, what is, what's a hadron is a legitimate question. So let's have a go. So sort of a hadron is a, a class of particle. Uh, sorry, uh, what's a particle? Well, actually, that's quite a profound question you've asked there, Wayne. Um, I don't really have a good answer for you. So let's, <laughs> let's just sweep them under the carpet. If we can just accept for now that it's something that's very, very small. OK, so hadrons are a kind of particle uh, made from quarks. Well, what's a quark? Well, again, a quark is a, a kind of particle. Uh, you find them inside, for example, protons and neutrons. What are protons and neutrons? Again, uh, particles, you find them inside atomic nuclei. What's a nuclei? Well, uh, uh, Wayne, a nucleus is uh, the tiny center of an atom. What's an atom? Oh, piss off. Um, <laughs> so we, ha we have to give all our visitors a three-hour lecture on quantum field theory just for them to be able to understand the title. So I really hate the name Large Hadron Collider. Uh, the experiment I specifically work on is no better. It's called, imaginatively, LHCB, which if you speak acronym, you'll realize stands for Large Hadron Collider, and the B stands for bottom. Uh, which is the type of quark, uh, except we tend to refer to the B quark as the beauty quark at LHCB, because we'd rather be known as beauty physicists than bottom physicists, which I'm sure <laughs> you'll agree is more appropriate. Um, but it is a, a spectacularly unimaginative title, and it's annoying, because it's not as if there weren't some better alternatives. One proposition was to call it the beast. And how cool is that? It's a name that, it sounds great, and it actually stands for something. It stands for Beauty Experiment at Small Theatre, which perfectly describes what the experiment does. Um, if only I could have told my friends that I worked on the beast instead of LHCB, then I might have some. Um, <laughs> but, 
anyway, so particle physicists are spectacularly bad at naming things. Uh, they also have stupidly large experiments. So why is the LHC so large? Well, it's actually all to do with saving money. Now, that might sound rather counterintuitive, but the LHC actually re recycles a 27-kilometer tunnel that was used in the previous biggest collider called the Large Electron-Positron Collider, or the LEPCA, another snazzy title. Um, so the question you really need to ask is, why was the LEPCA so big? Well, what the LHC and the LEPCA do is they accelerate particles round and round in a circle and then collide them together at close to the speed of light and produce new exotic particles that we want to study. And the LEPCA accelerated electrons. And you can think of electrons as like excitable little children on a merry-go-round. So as they go round and round in a circle, you have to accelerate them harder and harder. They get excited, and they start to let out little shrieks of excitement, little whoops of joy, obviously not as sound, but as high-intensity X-ray radiation. Uh, so they're kind of like excitable merry-go-round riding radioactive murderous children, if you like. Um, <laughs> And there comes a point where they're going so fast, you have to accelerate them so hard, they just scream away as much energy as you're putting in. You can't get them to go any quicker. So to solve this problem at the LHC, they moved over to accelerating protons. Now, protons are 2,000 times heavier than electrons. So if electrons are small, excitable children, protons are, say, Eric Pickles. Um, and it's very difficult to get Eric Pickles excited, uh, which is probably a blessing, um, unless you tell him it's two for one at Greg's. Um, anyway, so... So he'll, he, you can accelerate him as hard as you like, as fast as you want, and he'll only occasionally let out a little woo. Um, so you solve the radiation problem. You now have a new problem, though, which is you have to get Eric Pickles around a circle at the speed of light. Um, so imagine whirling him around on the end of a rope. You're going to need a fucking strong rope. Um, <laughs> Obviously, we, we don't use rope at the LHC. We instead use extremely powerful magnets. And they have to be so powerful, we have to make them of a material called a superconductor, which isn't a shit bus-based superhero. Uh, it's a material that exhibits no electrical resistance, so you can have huge magnetic fields. Um, so, and the reason the LHC is the size it is, is that when it was designed, we didn't have magnets powerful enough to curve the protons on a tighter loop. And this presents a real problem for the future of particle physics. We can't just go on building bigger and bigger machines to get to higher and higher energy. So, one theory that's very in vogue at the moment is something called string theory, which basically says everything's made of string. Uh, it's very profound. Um, and <laughs> one, some people have calculated that to test the predictions of string theory, you need to build a particle accelerator the size of the galaxy. Now, given the current financial climate, I can't see that getting funded <laughs> anytime soon, unless Brian Cox lends us some money. Um, <laughs> but there, there is a solution, um, and the solution comes in the form of a joke. It's good, there's one joke in this set, so here it goes. Um, how do you know an elephant's been in your fridge? Footprints in the butter, exactly. So uh, what the LHC does is it collides Eric Pickles into each other and makes elephants, if you like. So these are the new exotic particles are elephants, and you find them directly. Elephants are very heavy, so you need lots of energy. But what if instead of finding the elephants, you could find their footprints? Well, it turns out there is a way to do this. So some brilliant work has been done at Imperial College recently where they measured something called the electric dipole moment of the electron, which is essentially the shape of the electron. It turns out that if these elephants exist, they effectively leave a footprint literally on the shape of the electron. It's like Eric Pickles has sat on it. So instead of being perfectly spherical, it's sort of squashed like a rugby ball. And what they found is that the electron is actually per almost perfectly spherical. And in the process, they ruled out a whole range of these exotic new ideas about what particles could be. And I mentioned this to uh, the head of my group at the Cavendish, and uh, he works on the Atlas detector, which is the sort of big bully boy of the LHC experiments, this gigantic cathedral-sized detector. And I said, it's really impressive what these guys at Imperial have done. They've, in a lab in South Ken, middle of a city, a few hundred thousand quid, they've done all the kinds of same kinds of things that you've been trying to do with your 11 billion euro experiment. And he sort of looked at me a bit skeptically and said, yes, I suppose it's quite impressive, but it's not very big, is it? Um, <laughs> But as I keep telling my fiance, you know, size isn't everything. If you get the technique right, you can still get good results. Thanks very much. <laughs>
and I caught up with Harry to find out a bit more about his research. Antimatter, you can think of, it's like, a, it's like literally a mirror image of matter. So if you held up a mirror to the universe, what you would see in it is effectively antimatter. So there's a kind of symmetry that relates matter to antimatter, um, and it comes in two bits. So the first bit is something called parity symmetry, which is literally a mirror image. So you actually, basically what that means is you flip left and right around. So you do that, you take matter, flip le left and right around, and then you, the other flip you make is to change the electric charge. So atoms are made up of uh, a positive nucleus and a negative electrons go around it. So an antiatom is a negative nucleus and a positive electron, so that's called an anti-electron. So antimatter basically is opposite electric charge and reflected in a mirror. Why do we think there was so much of it just after the Big Bang? Okay, so this symmetry between matter and antimatter, in our current theories, it's a very precise symmetry. So it's like a really, really smooth mirror. So there's no reason at the Big Bang where you create all the stuff in the universe. You shouldn't also make an equal amount of antimatter. That's what our theory tells us. So at the Big Bang, energy gets converted into matter and antimatter in equal quantities. So there's a big problem in that when we look around the universe now, we don't see any antimatter. There aren't any anti-stars or anti-galaxies or anti-people as far as we know. So that leaves us with a big question as to how is it that there's any matter left in the universe at all because what we think should have happened is that as the universe cooled and gravity pulls all the stuff back together again the matter and antimatter meet up and annihilate each other and you get a universe that basically contains nothing apart from some sort of low level radiation so the fact that we're here is a big problem and it tells us we don't really understand antimatter properly so where has all the antimatter gone then well, we don't know. Um, no one knows. So, I mean, there's, there's two ways of looking at it. I mean, either we could just be very lucky and that we've ended up in a part of the universe which is entirely made of matter and somehow the antimatter is over the horizon where we can't, in an area we can't see. And we know that, at least in the visible universe, that isn't any antimatter. Because if there was, um, where an antimatter region met a matter region, you get um, very characteristic gamma ray signals coming. So things like you get gamma rays basically with the energy of an electron because when an electron meets an anti-electron, they annihilate and get two gamma rays, each one with the energy of the electron. We don't see that. So that tells us there isn't any antimatter in the observable universe. So either we say, OK, we're just unlucky, the antimatter is somewhere far away. But if you take that attitude, you can't carry on doing physics because you basically say, OK, we live in a weird place, we can't understand the things. So we'd rather we always assume that the what we can see is basically what the universe is like. So that means we're trying. what we're trying to understand now is what is the subtle difference between matter and antimatter that allowed antimatter to disappear and matter to survive? And you work at LHCB, and yeah. the B is bottom or beauty, yeah. Quark. Yeah. When, you know, yeah. we'll, we'll go with beauty for now. Yeah. Um, how does that relate to the whole story of antimatter? Okay, so so the beauty quark or the bottom quark, depending on your taste, um, is an exotic like particle. It doesn't normally exist in in nature, but in the, when the LHC collides two protons together, their energy is converted into new particles, and you can sometimes make these these beauty quarks. And you never find uh, quarks on their own; they're always coupled up with other quarks inside other particles, which we call hadrons, so hence large hadron collider. So protons are hadrons as well. Um, and the the beauty quark has a particular pairing where it pairs up with an anti down quark to make a what we call a B meson and the B meson is a bit of a weird particle so it's kind of schizophrenic it f as it when you produce one of these things in a collision it flips backwards and forwards between matter and antimatter as it travels so it oscillates backwards and forwards so basically what you can do is you take you collect a load of these B mesons or you measure them and you see how long they spend as matter and how long they spend as antimatter and if you see a difference that tells you something about this asymmetry between the two so if you see for example that more often than not the B particle decays as matter rather than antimatter that gives you a hint about what this weird asymmetry might be that can explain why there's matter in the universe. 
So there is real physical evidence for antimatter. It's not just kind of a theorised thing that exists. It's actually you can see it in the way that these particles behave. Yeah, and you, I mean, it was discovered a long time ago. So uh, Paul Dirac, who was a Cambridge theoretician, 1929, he basically was trying to combine Einstein's theory of relativity with quantum mechanics, which at the time were quite new areas of physics. And what he found was that his equations predicted the existence of this weird mirror kind of matter, this antimatter. He thought he'd made a mistake and was really kind of distressed by this result. He thought he'd got it wrong. But actually, three years later, a guy in America called Carl Anderson, working at Caltech, he was looking at cosmic rays. So these are particles that come from space, smash into the upper atmosphere, and you get showers of particles produced. And he saw in his uh, equipment a particle which had the same mass as the electron, but opposite electric charge. So he discovered anti-electrons, the positron. So we've known about antimatter for a long time. It exists. It's, it's all around us, actually. If you, There's a piece of equipment called a cloud chamber, which lets you see particles and radiation. A lot of the time, what you're seeing in that is antimatter. So it's all around us being produced by high-energy processes. There isn't any, there's nothing, there's no large amounts of it in this room, but there are little particles flying around all the time. And what are the results um, from LHCB that you're hoping to get in order to elucidate why we don't really see antimatter around in our part of the galaxy? Well, there's, lo there's loads of different measurements. Most of them relate to these B particles, hence the name. So there's also we also do some physics with uh, something called charm quarks. So they do the same kind of thing. So um, charm quarks and B quarks all form these particles with this weird schizophrenic behavior where they go backwards and forwards between matter and antimatter. So my particular research, I look at a particular way that this B meson can decay. So it's a very, very rare process, and that process is sensitive to... Um, what we call sort of existence of weird new particles. So what the LHC is all about is trying to find, we know we know about the particles that kind of make up the universe and we kind of quite firm, the Higgs boson was the last one of that set. But we think there are more that can explain some of these problems. So supersymmetry, for example, is one of the theories that predicts a whole load of new particles. And some of these supersymmetric particles might be able to explain the differences between matter and antimatter. So these very rare B, B decays are sensitive to the existence of some of these weird supersymmetric particles, for, for example. So basically... It sounds kind of complicated, but actually the, what you actually do is very simple, basically. You basically count how much matter, how much antimatter, how many B mesons do I see, how many anti-B mesons do I see. And you should see the same amount of each. If you don't, that is a hint that there's something interesting going on. And you're also a science museum fellow. Mm -hmm. what, what exactly does that involve? So the Science Museum are starting a new series of temporary exhibitions, this Science Museum in South Kent in London, um, aimed at adults. So the Science Museum is well known as like a destination for kids. It gets like, it gets more, I think it gets more school visitors than all the other national museums combined. But it's the director's vision that the museum will make itself more of a place for adults, so increase its adult audience. So uh, the first in this series of temporary exhibitions aimed at adults is all about the Large Hadron Collider, which is a kind of... A very difficult subject, um, so and it's sort of perfect for perfect for sort of reaching out to a sophisticated adult audience. So uh, they, uh, the director decided that he wanted to have a particle physicist on board working on the exhibition as kind of like in-house expert, I guess in inverted commas. So um, that ended up being me. So I, I spend half the week here trying to do some physics, and the other half uh, advising uh, and helping design this uh, this exhibition and develop the ideas for the exhibition. What are some of the biggest challenges in trying to explain exactly what the LHC is looking for, what it does uh, to the general members of the public? It's a, it's a gift of a subject in a way. I mean, if you're going to talk about anything in physics, it's, you know, it's the biggest machine ever constructed. It's the coldest place in the solar system. It's the hot, got the hottest spots in the universe. It's just, you know, it's a very cool thing. So people are interested in it. So that actually helps a lot. People, people have heard of it. And like, you know, a lot of comedians like Dara Breen and, you know, got Brian Cox or Robin Ince on, on the radio. So it's, it's something that's well known. 
they know about it, but they may not really understand exactly what it does. And I think people have all kinds of misconceptions, like, you know, it's, it's there to recreate the Big Bang um, or, you know, it's going to destroy the world or all this kind of stuff. So those are the kind of ways that we get people in the door. And then trying to explain what the LHC does is, is not simple because it doesn't just do one thing, right? It, I mean, okay, it does just collide particles into each other, but there are thousands of scientists and they're all studying those collisions, all looking for different things. So I'm looking at be mesons and the difference between matter and antimatter. My colleagues down the corridor are looking for dark matter. Some of them are looking for mini black holes and extra dimensions of space. There's a huge physics program that you can talk about. Um, so it's it's difficult to kind of, the thing that's hardest to get across is the full scope of what the LHC is trying to do and not giving the impression that it was just built to discover the Higgs boson. Because now that that seems to happen, people go, oh, well, fine, sh sh job done. But actually, no, the LHC is going to run for another 20 years and there's a lot more physics that we want to do. And the Higgs was only really the very first part of that research programme. That was Harry Cliff. Well, sadly, that's all we've got time for on this Bright Club Highlights podcast. It just remains for me to say a big thank you to Harry Cliff, John Gallagher and Rosalind Peters and all of the other great performers on the night. And here's a final song from Rosalind to play us out. I've kind of got this sort of dual personality going on as much as there's one half of me that just kind of goes, romance, I don't need romance. Who needs romance? Not me. Uh, and then the other half of me does this. Why won't he call me? Uh, yeah, so this song's called Call Me Back, You Bastard. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm only joking. It's called Don't Call Me, I Hate You. Again, kidding. It's way more subtle than that. I got a book out of the library yesterday It's a story about a boy and a girl, isn't it always? About two people and how they change each other's world And library habits They're both reasonably attractive, I guess you could say He's tall and handsome with a lopsided smile like No one I could think of and she wants him to see her, but he's not so good at using his eyes. Or a phone. <laughs> yes, it's a real book. No, I didn't make it up so I could talk to you in subtext. <laughs> yes, it's all fiction. No, it's not at all based on truth. So you don't have to run and hide from this serious conversation that we are definitely not having. Oh, was I? She knows he likes her because he told her so. It's right there in black and white in chapter eight, but it's frustrating because he's running from his feelings because he can't quite handle the thought of making a commitment. Well, I'm sorry. She said in the book, the one that I read. I know they're quite convincing. It's the art of good writing, don't you know? It's all in the subtext. Can you believe they're just characters, the work of one person's imaginations? Are they making you uncomfortable? Oh, I see. Well, don't blame me. Blame the library. And right now, she's not asking for him to be a hero just to reach right off that page, metaphorically speaking. Take her hand and tell her once again. I've tried to fight it, but you know that we are more than friends. Don't you love reading layers upon layers of meaning? Got to love a bit of subtext. Yes, the real show that's playing is in what both of them aren't saying. It's always worth checking the subtext in life. I mean, in prose, I really, 
you have to go. Well, it was good to talk to you about my book. When I'm done, you should take a look. I'll just keep pretending until you write an ending. Then maybe we can stop with this.